This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. What's up? Welcome back to the House List podcast, my weekly podcast. My name is Peter Agost, and I'm the host and the producer of the show. Every episode is edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. And what a show we have. A uh, great, great, great conversation with a very cool, interesting artist that I've been a fan of for a very long time, Esther Belant, a great Hungarian, a great Hungarian-American, a New Yorker. Um, although I'm recording this intro down in Virginia, uh, visiting my dad, another great Hungarian, um, for Thanksgiving. So I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving, however you may have spent it, um, and safe journey if you traveled, and thank you if you spent any of your time while traveling or your downtime listening to the podcast. I know there's 10 million podcasts you can listen to, so uh, thanks for choosing the house list. If this is your very first time listening, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere podcasts are available, and I encourage you to, if you can like spread the word, that would be incredibly amazing as well. I'm actually recording this outside um, in my childhood home, in the backyard. I figured I'd get out and do this, um, be in the environment a little bit. And uh, so, if you hear some atmospheric noise, that's what is going on. So... I guess the um, catalyst maybe for this conversation that I had with Esther was that we have a show coming up too. A really great show that I put together as an agent and almost as a show curator too in New York City in Brooklyn at the Bell House on Friday, December 1st with Shilpere, Bush Tetras, and Esther Ballant. It's an incredible bill. So if you're going to be in the New York area or you live in Brooklyn or you might not even be hip to that this show was going on, you can get tickets now. It's close to sold out. I definitely feel like it will be sold out by doors, if not earlier. So get your tickets now at thebellhouseny.com. That's Friday, December 1st. So hopefully you hear this podcast before that. 
uh, especially if you enjoy this conversation I'm about to have and share with you uh, with our great guest, Esther Ballant. So we played a song at the intro of the show, this show, um, which is from her last record from a couple years ago. It's called The Mother. Actually, another great New Yorker, uh, Mark Rabot, played on that song, too. Um, some of you uh, who might not be familiar with her music may definitely know her um, acting and some of the roles that she was in. And that's really how I was first introduced to her. Obviously, uh, Stranger Than Paradise, um, the great uh, Jim Jarmusch film, was a seminal kind of uh, piece, a piece of art, really. And I just watched it recently, and it was really hilarious. And, uh, you know, I went to film school many, many years ago, and that was like a, a great piece to study and observe, really, and just enjoy. So, and really, in a way, and we talked about this in the in the conversation and I'll, again, I'll try not to go too long with my intro here, but it's such a great Hungarian-American story, which is really rare in American cinema. So I felt um, very close to that film. She's also in Tree's Lounge, which is super slept on if you've never seen that before. Steve Buscemi stars, and she has a pretty pivotal role in it. And a great ensemble cast, and uh, just an amazing piece of art too for what it is very timely feature came out in the mid 90s but many of you in the more contemporary sense would recognize her um, from her character on the show louis the tv show louis louis ck's show that was very well regarded i think it won some emmys Um, she was in the fourth season i think of a five season show and uh, played the hungarian uh, love interest in his building and we talk about that. We talk a little bit about Louis as well. And uh, we talk about all types of stuff. You know, her uh, parents were very seminal in like the improv and experimental theater scene in the early 80s in New York City. Uh, they founded a place called the Squat Theater, which is on 23rd Street. And I kind of came to know of it from some of the musical acts that were kind of held down residencies there. So DNA, which is Ardo Lindsay, who I've worked with and known for many years. Koti Mundi of Kid Creole and the Coconuts, who was actually on this podcast. The uh, He was actually the very first conversation I ever recorded for the podcast. It's episode two, if you want to go back to that. And Sun Ra, I mean, these were like the house bands at the Squat Theater. It's an amazing uh, story and history to it, if you ever have the opportunity to um, go back and learn about it. Um, and that's what I love about this podcast too, is just like digging into someone's, um, you know, artistic history and background. And, uh, Esther has a pretty, um, varied one and, uh, great conversationalist. And I was so thrilled and excited to do this and have this, uh, conversation, which we recorded in Brooklyn, not very long ago at all. So yes, anyway, let's get into this thing. Don't forget, Friday, December 1st, at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, Esther will play Bush Tetras and Shilpa Ray. I put the bill together. Get tickets now at thebellhouseny.com and come and see. Catch the Houseless Gang. We'll be there. You know what I'm saying? And uh, what else? Let's just get into this. I want to share this great conversation with y'all, and I will see you guys on the outro. My frame of reference for being like a first generation kid there was not any other hungarian families that that had that like moved there and had uh, mm-hmm. kids there there were a lot of 
graduate students basically that would come cycle through. So there was mm-hmm. like a college community that would then like come over for dinner and stuff. Oh, really? So you kind yeah. of connected with them? Uh, yeah, big time. Yeah, there was like there was like an ongoing like Hungarian community that was basically centered around the school. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like a foreign car mechanic. And my mom worked at the university. So there was like, you know, it was an interesting childhood where there was like a Hungarian yeah. presence. And um, and then the only other relatives we had in the States were like kind of far removed cousins that all lived obviously in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where they, that's where they all are, you know, are many, many, many Hungarians. So, yes. so I hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, fl- have you ever flown into Cleveland? Um. Yes. When you were doing the movie, did I you guys? I shot in Cleveland. Yeah. I can't remember if we flew straight into Cleveland, but I assume we did. Well, to my see, I haven't, but to my knowledge, I know that there's a greet, Hungarian greeting in the really? Cleveland airport. Yeah, that's what I was. Always, my, that's what my dad always told me. I've never flown, I've driven through it, but never. Flown. I don't remember that. That's amazing. So it's still yeah. is it still a big thriving Hungarian community I, there? Yeah, absolutely. I think as far as like in the states, it might have the highest population kind of per capita you know um yeah so anyway i mean in a in a way you see but you were born in hungary right yes okay but you basically like were raised here yeah Yeah, pretty much well i left when i was 10 okay so um i spent a good chunk of time there and uh i lived in paris for a year oh nice from 10 to 11 and a half or so and then i uh then we all moved to new york and New York ever since, except yeah. for a seven-year stint in L.A. But Oh, wow, did you? Okay, interesting. Um, so, growing up in New York, what part of the city were you in? Were you... 23rd Street. So, you were so, around the theater, right? Yes, we were... Um, first, we moved into... Where else? The Chelsea Hotel. Oh, nice, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, then we were looking for a building. I mean, we, you know, I was a kid, but... Um, for a building to make our theater yeah. and home. And uh, we actually looked at something. We almost ended up moving down to the old uh, uh, South Street Seaport, which back then was very different than it is now. Oh, yeah. Um, and I remember this lot and this building we looked at. But we eventually ended up down the street from the Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street. And that was like the intention of even coming to the States mm-hmm. was to... Because the theater existed before, right? So the theater existed in Hungary. Yes. And uh, the authorities banned the theater from performing publicly. So for a long time it functioned sort of underground. Right, right. Uh, they did their work out of a, uh, an apartment. Oh, cool. And the only way that people knew about the shows was word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth was was big back then because yes. it was always packed. Um, so what years are we talking about? So we're about talking right about from late 60s to mid 70s. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. you couldn't really promote publicly no. that at all. No. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, the theater wasn't banned until probably the early 70s, but but... And so they did have some public performances in, in strange public spaces and interesting things. Mm. But then they moved into the apartment. And, and that was actually really cool. But after a while, it became too small. And uh, yeah. they wanted to explore more interesting work in a more public sphere, which was not possible in Hungary. So sure. they left. Did that, so did the theater exist in Paris at all during that time? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, 
uh, very busy time and actually traveled a lot all over Europe. Oh. And mo- but it's particularly to Holland and uh, London, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and London. So wow, like as what an eight or nine year old um, child? Yeah, as it as it, I I spent my childhood traveling really. Amazing. I, I went to school in Paris for a year, but we traveled a lot, and and then we traveled a lot after settling in New York as well. In the states. theater, theater festivals all right. over. Um, some in the states, but mostly in Europe. Oh wow! Went to uh, Iran right before the revolution. Wow! The Shiraz Theater Festival in in Tehran or somewhere. Uh, or? Tehran, but also in Shiraz, which was oh, a, yes, which yes, was yes. actually a big deal. There was a Shir- It's it's a very loaded subject because politically it's a complicated. I actually have a. I don't know if I'd call it a song about it, but I have a, pe- a, a piece of work about that trip. Really? That's in a new project that I'm working on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be that young and in in that country at that time must have been um, incredible. Yes. Were you, like, sort of stuck indoors the whole time, or could you go? did you guys... Go out. It seemed like your parents were probably quite adventurous people. Yes, yes. With, well, right? no, no. You could totally go out because that was before the revolution. Right, right. Because that was, you know, it was under the Shah. Um, but the revolution was bubbling and in the air, and you would just have to hear the song if you really want to know yeah. everything. It's all in there. Oh, I can't in wait. In a kind of my own slanted roundabout back doorway, yeah. obviously. So then, with as like the theater, I guess, got started to develop its own roots here like mm-hmm. you must have uh obviously as you're like kind of growing up along with as like an adolescent then you're developing your own kind of conceptual sense of like art and where you yep. fit in and your Absolutely. opinions and stuff like that right like yes were you, uh, do you have any siblings or were you just a well only child? well yes and no i don't have any i have a half sibling uh-huh. in in europe who was born much 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 later and wasn't part of my growing up oh, but i don't have any blood uh related siblings but i have sort of siblings the other kids of the theater company sure, who sure. i grew up with so we spent our much of our youth and childhood together growing amazing up. you know there's a couple of guys that i've artists that i've worked with over the years quite closely that were a part of uh, the squat theater as musicians. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So to get some added perspective for me, because you know, I'm I was born in '79 and I grew uh-huh. up in Virginia, uh-huh. and I didn't come to New York until like the mid '90s anyway. So I obviously clearly uh, missed this that period. Like, period of time. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, it's very intriguing, especially because for me, I hold it very close because it's a it's Hungarians in America that are doing something like impactful in art, which mm-hmm. you know is seems seemingly is rare you know yeah. there's definitely hasn't been something like that by hungarians in the states to my knowledge uh, after um well i could be ignorant towards that well not not that specific thing right. but yeah hungarians are there's a lot of uh pretty exceptional hungarian artists overall i mean just photographers visual artists cinematographers mm-hmm. um you know the Writers, but they're lesser known internationally because they often haven't been translated. Right. Um, but it seems to be a place that inspires a lot of creative types. I don't know. Absolutely. 
I well, feel you do you feel that too a hundred percent yeah I mean for me I guess I've always because I've felt you know I kind of existed in two different worlds as like growing up Hungarian and uh, I mean my speaking is pretty bad but I mean yeah, like, yeah, but, yeah I was gonna ask um, yeah, I'm not going to hit, I can't have a conversation with you yeah. here, but you know, a pizzi or a kitschy, you know, yeah, I can nice. speak a little, you know, I can answer questions. Yep. It's funny. You could get by, certainly could get by there if you were dropped in the middle of Budapest. You yeah. Kind of find your way around. Nowadays, definitely, because everyone speaks English. But uh, then, in the, I mean, probably the first time I went was as a baby, like in 1980. And I went uh-huh. every year with my mom, like kind of through past the Berlin Wall going down mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like through the 80s. Um, but, you know, I was like a stubborn American child of the 80s too. Like the learning the language when there was no like kids around for me was was tricky. And um, But that doesn't mean by any means do I not identify with that too. I mean, I feel very, I think with age too, I've become even more proud of it too and more identifiable with I, that I culture. I find that to be know. true for me as well. Yeah. Well, I think like any teenager, you know, it's no matter how weird your environment is, there are certain sort of universal principles that every kid kind of follows. And yeah. uh, I wanted to, in a certain way, whatever that meant, fit in. So I wasn't necessarily um, searching for my Hungarian community here. Right. I wanted to fit in with... Luckily, New York was at that time a very international, diverse... And New York had its own rules. It wasn't like yeah, America, absolutely. you know. It was yeah, it seemed like it would be the kind of characters that even would come to the theater and come out of that were so exactly. dynamic that it's like... They I mean, it was just a natural fit, yeah. Right, who, right. who are the people that you know from that? So there's the two position. really great ones. One's Koti Mundi. Okay, I love him, yes. Uh, me too. Uh, he says hello. He too. say hello to him. I haven't yeah. seen him in a very, very long yeah. time. So me and him are good buddies. He lives in California now. Um, so I Mino want... know Popeye. Yes. I mean, yeah. I love his solo record, his earliest solo record. But I mean, obviously... Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Mm-hmm. And they did their very first show at Squat Theater. I don't know if you know yeah, that. Yeah, well, I didn't know that until he told me. Yeah. So how um, how did they even make their way there? Were they just hanging well, out Well, so there was... Um, uh, so basically, there was this Hungarian guy who somehow befriended one of the members of the theater. Our, our, our building was like this place where a lot of people just came and went. Really, and and this guy ended up living there, and he was really tapped into the music scene somehow, mm-hmm. and he started booking bands, and uh, I don't know how he he started with m- more jazz and blues. And what was his name? Janos Gott. Interesting. He's in the art world now, and I've completely lost touch with uh-huh. him, and I really don't know what he's up to. But, but he was like the de facto but promoter. He, but he was the de facto promoter. Um, and he first through some, you know, his girlfriend at the time was, so I don't know if she also had some connections in that world, I, uh, but his girlfriend at the time was um, Cheryl Sutton, who was an uh, actress with uh, Robert Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, quite well known, actually, and in some of his biggest production. I think she was in Einstein on the Beach and oh, wow. a few other really big ones. So... Um, um, in the original production, so 
maybe she knew some people, but anyway, he was friends with uh, a lot of sort of shakers and movers of that time and that scene and brought them over and then word spread and everything was like a village, you know, it was such a community. But when, so. so when music just... Would after a certain hour, then it would basically turn to a club or a venue. Yes, and also because there would be downtime between our productions. You know, play obviously takes some time to put together and make. Right. So one would have a a run for a few months or a year, and then there'd be a gestation period for. Right, right. Uh, and also all the times that we were in um, in Europe touring at festivals, oh. the the place needed to generate a little income. The club club never did that so I don't know how exactly that but it ended up being really fun and great and imp culturally right. important I don't think it was really as a business venture it was probably a colossal failure <laughs> well yeah I mean New York has such a rich history of venues of like DIY or kind of improv spaces for music that last um, you know a couple of years make it really kind of precise impact for that kind of window of time I think mm -hmm. I saw that I mean now I've been here you know like a little over 15 years since I kind of came back to New York so I've yeah. seen the whole turnover of like Williamsburg and Bushwick and like how impactful it was for certain different pockets of music scenes and they kind of come and go for a couple of years and as the venues are kind of open and close. Yeah. And this, in a way, this is a little different because there was, it, it kind of existed in two worlds, it, music and theater. Yeah, and, and film and everything else. I mean, the music and theater was the two specific worlds that it, it functioned as, but right. a lot of filmmakers passed through. We ran it as a movie theater for a little while. Oh, wow. Um, and that was a, a very organic thing at that time. Um, artists, filmmakers, writers, musicians, theater directors, they hung out together. It wasn't so compartmentalized. Right. So the, the sort of exchange of different mediums was a really organic thing. Yeah, it think. seems like it. I mean, just to... That Kate Creole and the Coconuts, and then the other artist is Ardo Lindsay, who I've worked with for many years. For some years, reason, so. I was going to guess that. There's such, I mean, with DNA and, and the Lounge Lizards, too. I mean, those are, each one of those acts, um, they're so different in so many ways, but I could see how it would, on any given night, or if they're one weekend, they're, it's them, or the next weekend, it's Kate Creole, or... I know that Sun Ra played there too. All right? the time. That really? they were one of the house bands. Well, all those bands. I mean, DNA Lounge was. How did you hook up with those guys? Cody? I hooked up with Arno uh, several years ago. I just wrote him an email because I knew that he was. I mean, he's been in Brazil for a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I said, like, I love your work, and if you ever need like a booking agent in North mm -hmm. America, this was like. He was like in between. It was like when he was just finished doing records on Ani DeFranco's record label. She had a mm -hmm. little record label called Righteous Babe. Righteous I think. Babe Records. Yeah. yeah so he did yeah. a couple. So um, yeah. So we. It's so interesting too because we we exchanged emails for quite a while, and I actually went to Japan for another music related thing, mm -hmm. and I had never met him Ardo before this, and uh, we literally like bumped into each other in the same hotel um, in Tokyo, and, and I mean, I'm already Not a cool. huge fan and yeah. admirer of his anyway, but that we had been like you, essentially been working, touch. yeah, yeah, I mean, I was basically his agent, although I never booked a show for him or met him up to that point. But you were really seriously talking about oh, yeah, working yeah. together. Oh, for sure. How yeah. great. And yeah, so have beautiful. you been in touch since? And 
Yeah, I mean, we don't work together in that magnitude anymore, but we had a couple mm-hmm. really good years, although it's tricky because of where he lives. and. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I wrote him an email yesterday about mm-hmm. his, just to get some perspective on his experience at the theater. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he hit me right back and nice. uh, shared. I mean, it seemed like it was just the memories that just those two guys have are pretty exciting ones. They were both pretty um, thrilled to write a couple lines. That's fantastic. Yeah. Great. I, I have, you know, just such great memories of that time and those people and, yep. Yeah, Ardo was saying too, like just some of the people he met there. I know that like some of Warhol's like actors um, uh, were there and Susan Sontag as well. Yeah, she's passed through. She was kind of a fan of the theater. That's uh, amazing. And yeah, really amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you know Ardo may have been referring to Nico lived there for yeah. a long time. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. And and you know Viva was kind of a yeah, friend, exactly. and I'm still we're her kids and I are sort of like family practically. Oh, cool. Spend a lot of time together. So to live there, though, like, it, was it, there was an apartment upstairs or something? Yeah, or? it was, so the ground floor was a theater right. and it was a storefront. Okay, yeah. Um, and that was also the venue, the club. Right. And uh, upstairs is where, uh, the, the second floor was the living room area and then all the other floors were where people had their oh, rooms. Amazing. So, I mean, just to spend one second on this, um, because I'm sure the people that listen to my show, too, are, would be curious. I mean, if you must have met and spent some amount of time with Sun Ra, right? Like, oh, yeah. What was your experience? Well, I mean, like? I was a kid, you know, when they, and they played there, and, and Sun Ra was sort of overwhelming because they would pull up with their bus from Philly, and right. it was like 27 people would pile yeah. in. Yeah. And to me, it was just amazing, these people all dressed up, and the music and spaces, the play. It was fun. Yeah. But I also sort of took it for granted. Oh, I swear, you know, it was really so many years later that I listened back to that stuff, and like oh my god that was like heavy shit that I was just <laughs> right. growing up like that was the soundtrack to my daily life right but they were actually um, I took a lot of that stuff for granted well I mean when you're like 11, 12, 13 or whatever exactly and it's in your bedroom <laughs> right <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously, I, I would think that by way of, um, like, the Lounge Lizards playing mm-hmm. there, or, I mean, uh, you know, Ardo and, of course, John Laurie, that mm-hmm. did, the, did the... Now, I don't know how well-worn territory this is as far as when you do interviews or when you talk to people, but obviously the 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 film must have been... They must have known you from that, right? Yes. Jim Jarmusch must have known you from... From the, Squat, yeah. yes. That's exactly where he knew me from. And from... Well, John probably was was somebody who may have actually recommended me for the film. Uh, uh-huh. Because we had known each other. We actually met John Lurie uh, in the theater um, as he never fails to remind me when I speak to him, which hasn't been in a while. He's known me since I was 12. (laughs) This just like ends every conversation. I've known you since you were 12. Um, Because he, it was pre-Lounge it was when he just moved to New York from um, Massachusetts, I think somewhere in Massachusetts, Boston. I think he'd been living in Boston. Um, and he found himself there. He found him. He made friends with one of the theater guys, and he was doing theater himself. Oh. He had a very interesting performance 
in which he played saxophone, huh. uh, but it was a real perform, and he he premiered it there at the theater. Really. And, made friends with one of the guys so it was like a one-man show or something. it was a one-man show his his girlfriend at the time was in it uh but uh it was about baseball really yeah that's <laughs> all i remember and it was cool really interesting and very simpatico yeah. aesthetics yeah know? that sounds yeah amazing so yeah um so then they obviously had like a close affinity for that room and then so how do you I mean casting that film I mean it's the theater had already existed for several years by that time yeah and I think Jim had seen me in a play I actually had um been in a couple of short films Uh before um I don't know. People saw me in the plays, and maybe there I had a cinematic quality or something. I don't know because I I was asked specifically. Um, what were the shorts? So there was uh, uh, somebody I think for NYU or Columbia. I mean, it's hard to remember now. There were just I just remember that it wasn't my first um, film experience. There were at least a couple. Right, right. Um, as well as the theater, right? As well as the theater. And the theater used film. I don't know if you know that, but I've no, been in films in the theater, in the pieces oh. as well. Oh, meaning that they shot, they were shooting it, and then... And then would... Uh, yeah, the first play that was produced in New York after we moved here was actually... It was a play called Andy Warhol's Last Love. Uh-huh. And it's the first thing we worked on is very quickly after moving here and it was a black and white film shot on the streets of Chinatown and downtown um, Andy Warhol riding horseback through the streets of New York wow <laughs> that's incredible it's shot in 1977 or 78 I think 77 oh my god um, yeah very cool uh, and I was in that is it like eight super 8 camera or something 16 or? millimeter yeah amazing yeah and then you would then you just show it. You showed it there. That, that that became a part. The theater was very interested in cinema. Yeah. Okay. So it was just you. It would screen. It was a twenty-minute film, and it. But there was like a segue into the film and out of it back into the live show. It wasn't just a totally standalone thing that had nothing to do with anything. But uh, yeah. So. Um, Did Warhol uh, like acknowledge you? Did you guys have? A, I can't remember. He seems like I, he was pretty. I mean, he was very aloof. Yeah, you know, maybe slightly self-absorbed. Yeah. <laughs> I'd actually met him and I knew him and I I had met him and kind of socially even mingled with him years after that show. Uh-huh. So there and there was never any acknowledgement. So I I mean there was never any conversation about it. Or I never knew. Uh, I mean, when I say mingled with him, you know, I right. I met him a couple few times sure, in sure. certain circles, and um, I actually have a funny story about him, but not maybe for this podcast. But anyway, you're welcome to tell it if uh, you'd like, but you can hold on to it. Yeah, maybe for right now, we'll see if we circle back to it. Uh-huh. But um, so I I. I was like way too cool for school at that time when I'd met him, so I would have been much too well cool for school or shy, which is kind of the same thing right. to actually bring it up and ask and say hey do you or do you know that we this theater did a 
play called anyway. I mean, I would have never exposed myself like right. that. So well, I just he would never, obviously have known the theater for sure. I mean, he had, no, he'd known of its existence, and he, you know, um, my father actually played Andy Warhol in the play, and he wore an incredibly well-made mask of Andy Warhol, wow. which. Um, his uh, his partner made, who was the incredible set designer for all the squat shows, and um, and my father in his Andy Warhol mask attended some event where Andy Warhol was, and so they shook hands with my father oh my in God. the mask. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, what a childhood, though. I mean, looking back at it too, it, it it's interesting because you know I just watched uh, Stranger Than Paradise. I hadn't seen it in so you long. Did? Re- oh. Very, very recently. Because you know, I went to film school, and of course, that's like, it's uh, a, a rite of passage too. At a certain, especially, I guess, if you're trying to make films in the '90s and stuff too. I mean, it's a tome. But mm-hmm. I watched it. Not only is it like probably the greatest like Hungarian American mm-hmm. movie that's ever been made. You know, as far as like Hungarians in America. You know, that I, from my vantage point, at least, it's like hilarious too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was supposed to be that funny. Obviously, you know, the, I think the, for me, the dynamic between you and John Lorry, where he's such like a curmudgeon and yep. an asshole and so inconsiderate, but and but this character that you're playing is also kind of like just uh, impervious to, to that at the same time, but kind of at his mercy. Yeah, know. yeah. It's a, a hilarious dynamic. In the, does it still work? I haven't seen it in so long. Um, it does still work. Because it, it had been, you know, quite a while. I mean, the yeah. nearing two decades since yeah. I watched it. Um, I think that there's something about the pacing that's really, like, refreshing. Because it's, it's you know, it's kind of airy and slowed down in a way where we live in now society. It's just so in your face. It's, yeah. like, so aggressive. That it's actually kind of like a relief. Because the laughs, like are kind of slower there's some yes. air between them in a way you know? oh that feels relaxing just to listen to you talking about it <laughs> yeah. I know everything has changed the tempo is very different right now yeah for sure I think that was the one thing I noticed and then on a more subconscious level to you know having like a the aunt sort of grandmother yeah. type that had you know uh, there's something for me uh, there's like emotional triggers that come from like being like scolded in Hungarian by like an older woman, you oh, know, really? where Did it's you like, have that? oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, someone like when they take you away, like when they take the character, like abduct her. Yep, like yep, that. Yep. Um, yeah, I definitely have a handful of like older <laughs> Hungarian women that have chastised me, and that, but that there's something about the tone of that language too, yeah. where it has this. I guess you'd have to kind of speak it or have it spoken to you a lot to kind of get. There's this sort of moroseness to it like you know or like sad sorrowful um but like strong but like i don't know i mean i could like just and and a little monotone right the the inflection is the inflection a little like the inflection is definitely it's flat but there's an emotion there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is there's a lot of guilt um in a way there's a lot but it's of it's also very beautiful and there's not uh, it's very difficult to find another language that you could compare it to. So what do you to. think it sounds like? I'm always asking people, what do you think the language sounds like? And I'll say a sentence, and I've no one can tell me. I mean... For, like, what is it similar to? I mean, really? as far as another dialect, I could... I mean, I guess the closest thing is, like, 
Finnish or yeah. Portuguese or something. Finnish and Hungarian are really close yes. to yes. uh, culturally, yeah. I guess, in a way. I guess I just don't hear that many people speak Finnish, so I don't have an ear for what it sounds like. No, I was, because when I went to Budapest last, which is really a couple of weeks ago, I have one cousin outside of Helsinki, so I had one night there, so I listened, you know, I'd never really, I'd done a show in Finland like a long time ago, and I, so the language is similar, it's just more Nordic, so it's like, yeah. I don't know, but as far as like Hungarian as a whole, there's something um, for me that just really registers, it kind of like, there's like a sort of sad tone, a sadness yeah. Yeah. Um, that yeah. may not be intentional. It's just a part of like the dialect. It's part of the culture too, yeah. and and it's part of the poetry. Yeah. And but it's a rich sadness. It's like very fertile. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it wait. I think if you there's a weight weightiness. Absolutely. I mean, if you listen to that that aunt character and that um. It's uh, you can feel that for me because I can identify it. But even like say okay when you were doing Louis's show yeah. and then you were speaking Hungarian the whole time, mm-hmm. which for me was a great, amazing treat because that's also never really happens in contemporary American television. So um, that that kind of communication where there was like a communication breakdown between the two characters. Yeah, you know? yeah, but. Even though you're like explaining, there's certain kind of monotonous stuff that you're yes. talking about. There's still a sad kind of hue to it that just comes out of that language in a way. Wow, that's I, great. I mean, I don't mean that. Hopefully, for any other Hungarians that are listening, it's not a slight by any means. It's just no. an emotional like identification. No, I think it's absolutely accurate. Were your parents like happy? Fun people. There no. are. <laughs> right. Do you know any Hungarians that are happy, fun people? Um, I'm probably a more happy, fun than most. Yeah, you seem pretty happy. I mean, uh, some younger, the younger generation, I think, is becoming yeah. a little more uh, in tune with just simple happiness. You know, um, my father did actually have a, a kid-like, joyous side. Okay, but it was wrapped in a big blanket of complicated neurotic dark uh, yeah you know so what was what he was writing or the plays that he was involved with they were probably there were not much in the comedic uh, sense at all yes uh, well he had a sense of humor right. definitely for sure but and actually if i think about um his friend one of the founders of the theater peter he was actually a pretty joyous character um, for for Hungarians, but but you know comedy and tragedy. I mean, they're right. two sides of the same exact coin. It's not like humor and comedy is in any way, shape, or form separate from tragedy. They're very intertwined. No. Right. I think yeah, Stranger Than Paradise is a cool example of that. Where there is something sad. There's a sadness there too. I mean, yeah, the music the actual reality of what's going on with this with your character too sort of like trapped maybe and that these guys both of them they play those characters so well I mean uh, Richard Edson too they're like these sort of shiftless knuckleheads of another kind of a lost New York era to the fedoras and shit yeah Um, yeah anyway like yeah it's definitely great to revisit and it's and and I definitely think that if you mentioned the Louis thing, it's it's there. It's 
for his show, which had tinges of, of darkness before, but I felt like that he really entered a, a, a sort of more somber tone with that whole oh, yeah. arc. I think as that... I think you were on the fourth. I think there were five Four, seasons. Yeah, yeah, I was in the fourth season. Yeah, yeah. I think it took, uh, you know, to look at just the art of that show in itself, and because um, it may or may not be worth talking about him as a human being at this point in time, which we certainly should and can. Yeah. But um, the way that that show was going and how they took that turn in the fourth season with where your character comes in and it's Hungarian and not many people understand Hungarian and that it was like a, a very different kind of love interest, I guess. Um, it showed a very, uh, I mean, I don't even know what the right word to, to pin it on would be, but there it was daring, I guess, yes. in a way. Yes, I think so. Risk, uh, risk there was a risk. Yeah. But I feel like artistically, um, I think it, he obviously showed, his, he shows his influences in his work greatly too. I've, like, you know, especially if you want going back to the movie and, and just maybe Jim's Jim Jarmusch's yeah. work in general, he clearly like informed like a generation of filmmakers that would come out of like the mid to late 90s. And mm-hmm. I think Louis clearly was like one of those. It's know? funny because we never spoke about it ever. Really? Uh, but it was so clear that this was in some ways a tiny bit of an homage even. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at, say, Horace and Pete, which I can, yeah, only made it yeah. through the first or second one. Yeah. If it that, actually got better and better. Right. I'd like to go back to it maybe yeah. a little later in life. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say this. If he didn't take generously borrow from Tree's Lounge and that, which is... I thought of that, too. In that it's just, you know, just, uh, you know, production-wise, where, okay, there's an apartment above a bar. Yeah. It's the inner workings of a bar. It just happens to also be... It's funny because that crossed my mind and I thought I was reading into it. But now that you mention it, that's... Yeah. I mean, technically, that's okay, it's set. Yeah. And maybe the, the... You know, there's certain, you know, writing elements that are are different. Like, who owns it, the history yeah. of it. it which they don't ever... But there was a into. nod there. Oh, I, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, well, Steve yeah. Buscemi's in it. Well, of course, yeah. That's a gigantic yeah, yeah, nod. Yeah. Although and it, I was in the other thing. So, I mean, his nods are actually pretty direct. And oh, yeah. yeah. If you, like, really, like, start... Yeah. If you, like, kind of watch them and you're kind of yeah. watching with a certain thing in mind. Yeah. Now, I watched those both recently because I knew that we would be talking and I hadn't seen either in a long time. Mm-hmm. Trees Lounge is, like, uh, also a, a beautiful ensemble. and I um, love Trees Lounge. Yeah. And I actually caught it a couple of years ago by accident. Uh-huh. You know how you see things differently when you don't anticipate anything and you just kind of out of the corner of your eye like hear catch it or like accidentally walk into a room and hear a song that it's just a different framing it's a different context and I walked home one day a couple years ago and it was on Sundance channel or Mm -hmm. IFC channel or something like that and uh, I sat down and I watched it and I thought it stood up really well today yeah. Which not all films do that are you know small you know exist in this smaller world. They often kind of date themselves. Definitely, but if no. you watch it again, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's totally trapped like in a certain kind of era because it was like in the mid nineties, right? Yeah. It came out, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like it could have been in any of the last three decades yeah. in a way. But just know? the characters and the dialogue is so yeah. lovely and refreshing. Oh, yeah. And um, do you? 
this guy was in both of those movies too. Rockets, uh, Red Glare. Yes, what, I knew Rockets. Yeah, what was his? What was he like? Really funny, really smart, tragic figure. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, was like a, also like a comedic, a comedian. In yes, a way, he was right? a comedian. He uh, a real slave to drugs, I believe. Yeah, which is yeah, quite you know that is a tragic um, thing. Artists that fall into uh, yeah. that, you know, drugs, drink, um, but really sharp, funny. One of those guys that if you if you think he was that sharp and funny with all the abuse his mind yeah. had been exposed to, man, he would have been like, what you know, a total genius without right. that abuse. But yeah, so I mean, I didn't you know spend that much time with him, but. I knew him over the... And he was sweet to me, always. I I have really nothing but good things to yeah, say about him. Yeah, I just... You know, that's not someone that really people talk about that much anymore. And he was like a... Pre- right. He seemed like a presence, like a lot of the... Like a John Laurie or these guys that are kind of like... In the bar scene and in the, right. the club scene, definitely. And he's he'd seen a lot. And he always had stories. Yeah. He was one of those guys with a lot of stories. Yeah, definitely. Going back really quickly, too, is that you had... Um, this amazing scene with another like super iconic like hip hop visionary uh, Ram L Z mm-hmm. who was in which is pretty, pretty I actually cool. roped him into that movie did you mm-hmm. that's incredible I'm not sure everyone remembers that but I do yeah you wrote that, that I, little exchange. I didn't no no he I think this I'm not, not going to take credit for the scene because I think Jim wrote the scene I'm, I'm not sure but we discussed, and I may have even suggested him for the role, and I knew him, and I reached out and got him involved. That's amazing. Yeah. Because he's also now, like, you know, in certain circles of, like, you know, in, in, both in New York and outside, I guess it depends on, like, for record collectors or, like, this. that guy was, like, so ahead of his time. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. So you guys were friends? Um, well, he was another person that hung out at Squad a lot. He did Amazing. things that he did a couple of performances at really? Squad. Yeah. Uh, Do you recall them? Yeah. Well, he did this one thing that was just you know he had this crazy, uh, whatever I want philosophy. Uh-huh. Let's call it. Do uh-huh. you know anything about that? No, not off the top. Of my his head, no. his it was about this war of the letter uh-huh. war of letters that somehow life is organized by this warring faction of letters I would really do it grave injustice if I try to right. explain it to you because I did not really understand it then nor now and I'm uh-huh. not sure if he completely understood it either uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was somewhere between utter gibberish and utter genius brilliance wow. um, yeah. but he did it but it involved graffiti letters and he did a whole and he had like an army of um characters who were his sort of uh protege not protégés not protégés what would you call them but I don't want to call them underlings but they were his representing his letters and there's graffiti and rap involved and he was a really interesting guy Oh yeah, I think his even his like kind of stature with time as time passes, he becomes even more of like he is like a Basquiat type. Yeah, of well, guy. there's nothing like a little old six feet under to boost your. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, sad but true. Sadly, I, I, yes. I don't mean course. to be glib about that. I it came off 
sunny, but you know, I, I, I was just being a little bit cynical about how no, it's very true, notoriety though. when. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we, you people finally start paying attention a little more closely uh, when they know that okay, this person is no longer going to be making anything. I mean, right. that's one perspective. Right. Perhaps. That is I mean, that. I think that is a, definitely a perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that's it's a theory. Like you can kind of look at it from a lot of different ways. I mean, yeah. I think especially now with like Instagram and in the way that like society is too that when a celebrity or an artist dies, they immediately become like canonized or memorialized in this really intense yeah. kind of way that didn't seem like it existed like for artists of say that passed in like the 80s or 90s. You yeah, know, right? the, you mean the digital, you mean yeah, the digital yeah. Yeah, yeah. consciousness, it's kind of out of control. It's, it's I totally mean, it's a joke. Control. It's really rife for comedy, actually. Absolutely, whole, like, yeah. Um, morning, you know, ritual on yeah. Facebook and all that. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's intense, um, yeah. for sure. Uh, but, you know, there's something very human about it. I think ultimately people want to feel there's just so much shit and bad feelings yeah. and it's it's like if you can stop for a moment and just be sad and think fondly of someone it's almost a relief so we yeah. latch on to that feeling yeah yeah it becomes a little superficial because we all do it too often and 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 because by nature of facebook and those expressions are a little superficial, but exactly. probably I the mean, intent what, behind it is kind of a human, you know. There is a human being behind that's holding that device, you know, yeah. one yeah. way or another. As as their kind of, I guess, of their consciousness sort of starts to, um, you know, uh, coagulate from overuse of their phone and the computer. Which I mean, uh, so many people on myself. I'm not saying that I, I'm. I'm absolutely guilty of that. Oh, I me mean, too. Totally. I'm that. Absolutely. But deep down inside, there is like a human emotion that's making certain decisions that still feels obviously feels um, remorse or yeah. you know yeah. sadness for yeah. loss. I mean, this is such, such like a carnal base. And it's but it's also it, I think what I was trying to say it's also a way of just connecting on that level with yeah. other humans. Right. Ultimately it comes from a good place. It's but like right. and it's almost a relief even though it's sad, it's a relief to connect to other humans. Like we can feel sad about this together and it's a, a little moment of respite from all this barrage of especially right now uh hateful and scary and ugly shit that's coming at us all the time. It's like, yeah. pause, let's mourn somebody together, you know? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. It's true. Especially, especially as they, if they make a huge, if there's a huge impact that's made by a certain person, like Prince, you yeah. know, yeah. or look at David Bowie, you know? That was actually, I don't get so fucked up by celebrity death usually, but that one was really surprisingly big for me. Yeah, I mean, and the fact that it was like his, he had art that was sort of coming to the world like at the same time and after, yeah. and that it seemed yeah. like he had foresaw something where it was like, okay, I'm going to deliver upon you one another piece of mine because yeah. my time is running out. And Yeah, um, yeah, that may have imbued it with an even more sort of tragic and heavy yeah. sense. 
I mean, you know, you guys have a pretty unique film together, too. Um, that, uh, yeah. And now, you may look at it, I'm sure your opinion of it is, 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 is different. We don't necessarily have to talk long on it. But okay. the fact, um, and that's unless you like to. I mean, no, I, no, I've watched it recently as well. You did? Oh, I did. my God. I tracked it down. It's not readily available. Yeah, good. Thank God. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, and there's sure there's... Let's cer- not even name it. We but working it, with but him was, you know, one in, of the highlights of my yes, life. Yes, I mean, and you had, I mean, many, many, many scenes many, with him. Yeah. Like, some pretty hilarious ones, too. I won't name the film, but, I mean, there's even one, like, there's a couple, there's this, you guys are in Coney Island or on the beach, mm-hmm. and... I don't know. Sure, it's like it was a, kind of a weird movie, yeah. but he... You know, its an original intention was actually probably pretty good, but it uh-huh. just somehow didn't quite come together. The jokes didn't land or something. But anyway, we're, you might have different thoughts on it. Well, I mean, just watching him, and he's yeah. like this beautiful man in it, and he's like, it is one of his many peaks in his career, it seemed like. I don't know. But that he is like playing this sort of like two-bit hustler yeah like yeah and it's like a comedy it's sort yeah. of a slapstick comedy yeah. ish but you know and there's this moment too when he kind of puts on this like cockney accent or something like mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was it's pretty it's pretty genuinely like hilarious yeah you know? yeah even yeah. though i'm sure he would look back and was like you know well, i can't wins. believe yeah. that i did that you know yeah um i don't know i mean in the context of your your you know, film commercial film work or whatever. It's like an interesting one, only for the fact that you guys must have spent a ton of time working together. There's a lot of scenes in like you know, in like an apartment or in this like club thing. So, what I mean, if there's any memory from that, I mean, did you enjoy? I mean, you must have enjoyed that, obviously. So much. I mean, I just moved to LA, you know, six okay, months yes. prior to that or something like that. So I was fairly new in the city, and this was a great way for me to just kind of get in. I um, I think really most of my problems are just with myself. I hadn't found my own way. It, it, you know, it's not work I'm proud of for me. That's all. But... I mean, it's like the early 90s. There's not a lot of great uh, stuff. That yeah, it was a weird period. Yeah, it was... A, it, I think everybody was just trying to find their footing, like transitioning from one yeah. cultural cycle or phase to another. Yeah. Um, so, artistically, you know, I I couldn't quite sink my teeth that much into it. But working with him, and first of all, everybody who worked on the movie was a great experience. For sure. me. I don't have any bad experience um, on that film on any personal level or with anyone. It was a fun crew. It was a fun experience. But I mean, working with David Bowie was just like holy fuck, you know, it hit me. And I wasn't that easily impressed the way I Uh grew up. It was not even cool for me to admit to myself that I could be starstruck Uh (laughs) by anybody. But I remember seeing David Bowie posters on, like, my father's best friend's wall when I was six years old as Aladdin Sane or or Ziggy Stardust. And, and I was like, who is that? Because that's impressive when you're six-year-old, some guy dressed like a woman or like right. an androgen, you know. And, uh, and my dad loved him. And I, when I was, a, we didn't even really talk about this, but when Squat Theater was a club, I was a DJ. Really, oh. when I was 13 or 14, I started spinning records. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, there was a booth? There was a booth. Wow. Yeah. 
I had a booth built for me. Um, you, so you were the house DJ? I was the house DJ. Wow. And uh, with a pretty cool record collection, and I had really, you know, pretty good taste in music back then. That sounds completely cocky, but uh, but anyway, you know, Lodger had just come out, which I thought was a brilliant record. And so, I mean, this was a guy I grew up, you know, he was an icon in my growing up, and here I was in a room with him rehearsing for this movie that we were going to co-star in, and I think it was the first time in my life that I could genuinely admit to myself, I am fucking starstruck. Right. (laughs) And then... That's a good one to be. I mean, come on, it's David Bowie. It's like, you can't uh, get too much higher than that as far as, like, amazing, brilliant star. But then, so the next level of that was that working on this movie with this guy I was starstruck by is that he was a completely genuine guy uh-huh. a completely smart and brilliant conversationalist and humble and a great and easy and funny hang wow incredible now obviously we're not we weren't like we're not cousins you know I had yeah. this very short limited span of getting to know him in a, in a very artificial environment which is yeah. a film set so I I can't I'm not going to pretend I really know the guy but in that context uh, it was just the nicest surprise that somebody who I admire that much could be that easy to get along with. Yeah, cuz I mean usually that isn't really the case. No, Someone that, that isn't the there's case. they're like that big of like a, you know, international icon that no matter what country or town or city they're in like that's they're the it's the biggest thing that's happening. Yeah, you know, like yeah, that yeah. has to affect your ego slightly. Yeah. you know, I would think absolutely. So, and I'm sure you know it had it, he had where where that came out, but I didn't really see it, and it was a wonderful experience. So I'm very lucky. And and when he passed, it was really it fucked me up. Yeah, and it could because maybe also when you had actually met someone who who made a big impression on you in your life, uh, you sort of think that maybe someday you'll cross paths again somewhere yeah, down the yeah, line, and it's right. kind of an almost unconscious thought that I realized I had, and then he was gone. And it's a, it's a strange kind of mourning to mourn that, no, that will never happen. Right, right. That, that's a different kind of loss. Oh, yeah. Well, to, like, collaborate with someone in, like, a artistic way for work where you're a team if you will Mm -hmm. and you're contributing to one another uh, helping each other out regardless of what it might be like whether it's good or not or however you might classify it yeah there's something uh, very um intangible like emotionally that is so invaluable i think you know uh, especially you know i guess i can't i can relate in certain levels but for someone like David Bowie, where yeah. his influence and his kind of reach in the world as yeah, a whole yeah. to be so much like when you are sitting next to the person, you're like, oh, he has fingers and yes. eyebrows yeah. like me. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, and of course, it's David Bowie who also, uh, on top of everything else, he had this otherworldly persona. Yeah. It just, it just was not like something I ever considered a world without David Bowie in it, right. you know? Yeah. It was sort of... 
What so during that so living in LA? What was that like? That that was to pursue more of a film. Um, well, originally, but it was actually where I had uh, gone to the into the belly of the beast and and decided that. I wanted nothing to do with it, so I sort of quit the whole film thing for a long time out there and got really heavily invested in music. I could see that where L.A. just, you know, I mean, you're a New Yorker, too, yeah, but, totally. you know, it's a I, tough transition. Really tough. I left New York. When I left New York, it was a really hard time for me in New York, and it was the mid to late 80s. New York had completely transformed from what it was when I was growing up, and, uh-huh. and besides, everybody needs to leave home, right, at right. some point, and New York was sort of de facto my home I'd been here since I was 11 so um, so with the film it made sense to go out with the film work acting work it made sense to go out to LA but eventually LA and I were a terrible fit Uh and I figured that out a few years into it and um, why is this the people were phoning and driving and and, yeah um, all of it all of it it's it's the the people the sort of lack of community Mm -hmm. uh the driving culture, um, I find it aesthetically just so. Most of LA is so ugly. That sound. It's not. A, it's kind of an ugly word to use. Right, so I'm right, sorry, right. but. Um, and and I did have some wonderful friends out there who some of whom are still there, but there was no community. There was no center. There was no. Uh, wait for any spontaneity ever to sure and I was actually single most of my time out there for I wasn't in a a relationship and it's a really lonely place oh yeah so I just eventually ended up hating it yeah I could see too coming out of the theater and a place where it's like you're surrounded by like extremely creative yeah yeah definitely that was that was like a shock to me that most people aren't like that in the rest of the world, no. and, and certainly not in LA. Well, no, and and you were very, you know, you found yourself, I guess, growing up in a very unique, extremely unique place to be able to be a child amongst like a lot of like, you know, groundbreaking, progressive like women and men artists of like every kind of field you know it's just not a lot of kids i mean some kids get that and they kind of squander that and or you know i don't know just like hearing you describe it it sounds it was exceptional and incredible but you know when you're a kid and you're growing up with it you take it for granted i thought that was kind of what the world was like i didn't think it was that exceptional and incredible at that time i mean i did i enjoyed it but i didn't remind myself that this is this is a very rarefied experience right and uh, it was a little bit of a harsh realization later on. Were you doing music in L.A. too? So I, that's where I really got seriously into music. Oh, cool. I mean, I'd, I'd actually dabbled with music for many years before that. I, I played violin as a kid. and mm-hmm. um, That's still like your primary instrument, yeah? Or guitar and violin? Or? Violin. Yeah. I would say, well, that's... That's what I think of as my primary instrument because that's the instrument I have the most history with. Right, right. Uh, but then in LA, f- for real, I I decided no, this is actually what I want to do. Yeah. Were you gigging? Like were you playing I was shows? I was just you know, not that 
long before I moved back, but for like a year or so before right. moving back is when I, and I made a demo out there, which actually ended up then getting me a record deal back in the day when you could do things like that, <laughs> right. make a demo and get sure. it. <laughs> and shop that to get yeah. a deal, right? <laughs> yeah, those days aren't really, nah, that doesn't really happen, that model doesn't happen. Yeah, that model is over. But Yeah, the, but the label that did your debut, that was a New York label, right? Scratchy? Yeah. Yeah, they were in New York, but they but Adam Schlesinger was one of the guys. He I think traveled to LA. I don't even know how I hooked up with him originally. I, really I know don't that know. label through Mike Ladd. So this guy Mike Ladd was like a poet rapper dude. That was actually pretty like um, innovative guy. I remember him out. being on the label. Yeah. His yeah. debut album came out um, on that label. I think if not the same year as yours, like right around that time. Um, which I found that kind of interesting. I, I don't know anything about the label or the guy that ran it, but um, what's he doing now, Mike? Mike Ladd? I think he's still um, doing stuff. He's not as prolific as far as releasing albums, but mm-hmm. he had like a really strong run from the late '90s into the mid 2000s, and um, but also was doing a lot of theater style stuff, you know, um, and like poetry, more like the poetry, mm-hmm. um, spoken word kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. I've lost a little uh, touch with whatever he's doing currently, so I know that he was pretty prolific at the time, so I would assume he's still active in some regard. I'm gonna yeah. ask Mr. Google. Yeah, he was. He did some pretty like pretty like forward thinking stuff for the genre at the wow. time for like hip hop related stuff, you know. Um, but I just know I just noticed when I was trying to that learn he was the, on uh, yeah. Scratchy, which is how I know his name. Too. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Because you only did a couple of albums, right? Like, there's one that came out, like, very recently, but... Well, I did three. Yeah. I've done three. Um, With some pretty large breaks in between. Large right? breaks in between, especially between number two and number three. Um, right. I had a kid. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So that's one That's a good reason thing. to take a break. There, there are many other reasons mixed in there, but that is, really sticks right. out as number one. Sure. The whole music industry changed, really. Well, my, my second record caught the very tail end of an already dying indie music industry, and it was very difficult to figure out how to keep on doing this, and right. maybe too difficult while trying to raise a kid, and I had a lot of other stuff going on, too. But right. So, and then, like, so you just recently sort of came back both to music and film, I suppose? Well, not quite. So the music thing, I never actually stopped. I didn't, it took me a long time to make a record. Sure. But, and I, and I stopped gigging for a little bit while I had a really young kid. But eventually I went back to gigging. I played on some other people's records. Yeah, you did something Um, with, um... Swan, Michael yes. from Swans. Yes, a Michael few Gira. things. I did something. Uh, I did a Swans record. I played on. Oh, cool. I also played on two Angels of Light records. Yeah, that's right. Um, I did some projects with Mark Rebo. Oh yeah. I went great ba- artist. Yeah, pretty great. Um, I went back uh, to gigging on my own stuff. So musically, I did read. I did stuff behind the scenes, but just right. uh, took me a long time to figure out the model of how to make another record and I'm right. quite frankly not sure that I did figure out that model <laughs> yeah well uh, it's constantly changing now or just uh, mutating yeah I guess yeah so are you working on one now I'm working on a new project that will want to be something and also a record by something okay. I mean like a performance so but it's taking a little while I have 
a whole bunch of new songs for this project. Um, it's with this guy, Stu. Do uh-huh. you know him? I know. I don't think so. Stu, do you know the Negro problem? I don't know. Um, so you got to, yeah, educate me. He He's from L.A. Uh, he lives here now. He did a musical called Passing Strange some years ago, which actually okay. won a Tony. Oh, amazing. And he uh, also did a show at uh, at the which started at the public but mm-hmm, then went mm-hmm. on to Broadway and then he, more recently he did another show at the public called The Total Bent which was really cool and he has an incredible show called uh, Notes of a Native Song about James Baldwin oh amazing okay um, and he's really brilliant and uh, he and I are working on something uh, and we have a bunch of new songs, but he's very, very, very busy guy. So this may take yeah, a little while. Like it. Yeah. So I may actually uh, simultaneously work on a record of my own. My last record, Airless Midnight, which came out a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, something like that, was done with the whole with the advent of the whole fundraise, whatever you call it. Right. You know. Um, crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing. That's the word. Thank you. And I don't think that's for me. So I don't know if I can do that again that way. It's a tricky model, you know, that can quickly, I guess, get exhausted, right? Like... I already feel like it's a, or it's kind of exhausted. Right. But maybe I can figure out a way to have someone help me. And I, but I can't do it myself alone. So I'm not really sure how I'll make my next record. But anyway, this project with Stu will be a record but it will also probably be a show oh cool um but i will also want to you know make a record of my own and i've been still on the side working with other people too so so with the shows that you do now though it's like a mix of the older and newer material so um i've done some shows with stew where it's that material and i've some done some shows of mine which is uh a variety of my own songs, probably the bulk of it from my last album, and then yes, I've been incorporating and sort of adapting mm-hmm. the, some of the songs from this project. Do you ever sing in Hungarian? No, I never have. Um, yeah, that's interesting. You could, huh? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that could be a totally different thing in itself. But you've been, you've played in Hungary, yes? I have. Um, I'm trying to remember when it's was been the a while. last time. It was, it was a while. It was a while. Have you done shows there for people? I DJ. I've DJed there. Oh, you um, have. I you have. DJ. Yeah, that's what uh, I. I don't go. I don't DJ out as much as I used to. I used to tour. Um, I don't mm-hmm. do that as much. But, but I also you know primarily book shows for people as like an agent or a promoter or something like that. But I did DJ there. Um, last time I DJ there was like probably 2006 or seven, but it was a smoky basement club where literally every single person was smoking cigarettes and blowing them directly onto the oh, stage it was it was that's pretty, not good for your <laughs> no <laughs> no not at all it was pretty hilarious though just like coming from the states where you know yeah but uh yeah i spoke some like broken hungarian to the audience which felt like i accomplished something you know? and they probably enjoyed that i think they appreciated it. i don't know if they understood what i was saying <laughs> but i was just trying to say thank you but uh-huh. uh um, yeah, and then I've been back there a couple times now. There's like a, there's a scene. There's like a young really? rock scene, like a guitar-driven rock bands. But there's also some really amazing like electronic music and DJs and um, yeah. As, as far as Budapest, I mean, when you yeah, get outside, yeah. it's a little more like those college 
town folk rock festivals and oh um, yeah do well, you know your Hungarian bands like I do not at all did you know I Quimby bet you... they were pretty popular like in the 80s and 90s Quimby yeah they're like the like an REM style really yeah um and, Who else? Uh, Throw some names at me. Well, I work with a great band now, a contemporary rock band called Ivan and the Parasol. So they are primarily singing in English. Occasionally mm-hmm. we'll do some Hungarian um, numbers. Um, then, uh, Dan, like, uh, I can't remember a lot off the top of my head because I'm on the spot now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, no, uh, I know how that is. I have the same thing. There's a couple big, like, the big classic rock ones of, like... Um, you know, my cousin, Gabor, Sizer Gabor, who's like a really amazing play director in Budapest, actually, funny enough, he went to the Queen concert. You know, when there was like this very revolutionary concert when Queen went behind the Iron Curtain and played in this soccer stadium in Budapest. Freddie Mercury like sang this beautiful song about a virag and, and something. Wow. Do you know this concert? No. Oh, you should, yeah, check. I'm sure it's in the Hungarian lore. Uh, Absolutely, because it was like, there weren't any, you know, quote-unquote Western bands or whatever that Traveling. Yeah. that would go there. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky enough yeah. for Americans to perform in Hungary anyway because the taxes are totally fucked there. And the government is so messed up. Oh, it's so too. messed up right now. That's, yeah. that's why I'm... Not sure this. There's that big festival though, the Seaget. Seaget, yeah. You, you know about that, right? Have you I had do. any bands that? I've never there? booked a band on there, although um, I know a lot of the American acts that play it. But or it's books. gotten pretty huge now, right? Yeah, it's, like, it's comparable to any other larger scale like uh, European, European uh, festival. music festival yeah. that does yeah. like, you know. Um, Large, you know, electronic acts as well as like more kind of like hipster of the moment type shit. And Mm -hmm. some Hungarian, I mean, there's not a lot of Hungarian bands that are playing on it. Some are. Mm -hmm. But it's still a great way for artists that probably wouldn't normally come to Budapest to Mm -hmm. to come and play. Mm -hmm. Because it's a beautiful city. It's a lovely place. I'd love Um, to play the Suget Festival. Somehow it never happened. But there there was talk about it here and there. Oh, yeah, I'd love to see that happen. Yeah. Try to make that happen. I would love to do that. Yeah, maybe for this summer. I'm sure they're just now... Starting pro- to book for the summer. Oh, I'm sure they're happy. But I didn't through. know if maybe they've gotten so huge that you have to be like Beyonce to play there or something. It's it's close to that, for yeah. sure. I mean, I don't know if you could headline it, but... No, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think the Prodigy, the Prodigy headlined it every year. Uh, really? That's gotten, no, that's kind of... Maybe every other year. <laughs> Um, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, uh, it would be amazing if you were able to get back there or go. There. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, I would love to, even though it is really fucked up right now there, right? Politically, yes. it's just. But you walk around. It's like being in New York, where New Yorkers are impervious to yeah, the ills of the I world. I hear that. You know? I've actually re- just recently heard that from somebody who'd been there, or maybe a Hungarian. I can't remember who said that. It's totally fucked up, but in Budapest, there is a little bit of a sense of it's a the bubble. fucked upness is elsewhere. Right. They're, they're still being Budapestians doing their Budapest thing. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of, like, prop, propaganda billboards, though, from my last few times being there. There's mm-hmm. a statement that's being made. I'm not as educated as I'd like to be on, like, truly what's going on. I know there's a Same high here. level of corruption, but... Um, and, like, pseudo 
fascist government. I Absolutely. Mean, not, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, and they are at the forefront of this movement. Oh, yes, leading They're, the pack. Yeah, they totally... Yeah, which is total bullshit, too. I mean, and obviously our country is completely enraptured in that, too. So at least, uh, you know, but we don't necessarily have to go too deep into all that. Um, I'd love to, I mean, kind of speaking on your acting stuff, because there was such yeah. a big break. Now, yeah, so um, that was a much more of a clear big break. So uh, was the Louis thing you kind of coming yeah. back? So how how did you even get the offer? Like, what did that... Well, I knew Louis a okay. little bit. right. And... Our kids went to the same school. We knew some people. We had mutual friends. Right. And uh, we'd see each other in passing at the school. And, uh, you know, he clearly knows the movie and knew who I was. And he just approached me. And it hmm. was really straight ahead. He came to see a gig of mine at Barbez, actually. No way. Yes, oh, way. So the neighborhood um, pub. And, uh... But I think when he came to the show, he was already eyeing me for this role right. and thinking about me. In fact, I know that because he told me that after the show. <laughs> um, and so uh, then I went to his house. We read through his script. And uh, there you go. There was Amazing. no. There's very direct, no agents or casting people were involved. I mean, they were involved just in the little... Min- minimal business deal aspect of it, but he approached me himself. Um, the scenes with uh, your mother or aunt? Um, my, my aunt, Ellen Burstyn. Ellen. Yeah. Yes. What an amazing actress. Yeah. Um, so, that was it? And what was it like working with her? I mean, to just ask. So great. I mean, just natural, easy. Yeah. You know, it was sort of effortless. Is what yeah. I, how the word I would use? There was no fuss. Right. I actually had dinner at her house before we started shooting because she was interested in talking to me about uh, Hungarian accents, and oh, she was cool. working with a coach, and um, we had a casual little dinner. She was a lovely, lovely person, easy to work with, and acting-wise, it just all felt really natural and effortless. Yeah. She is amazing, yeah. Um, she was incredible in Requiem for a Dream, uh, among many other roles, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't... I mean, I feel like it's kind of interesting looking at your work and sort of the roles that you played, at least in the stuff that, I, that I've that i seen, you know? Yeah. And, um, I'm, you know, I think I've seen a, a fair amount. Sounds like it. You, went, <laughs> yeah. you, went, you, you dug deep into the archives. I did, but it's a Hungarian thing, too. So it's yeah. about, you know, I think any, you know, Hungarian-American type person that's into film and the arts and stuff there's like this inherent thing where you have to like really you want to be able to support yeah and and know everything and not just bullshit your way through like so many people (laughs) yeah definitely. which is nice it's refreshing right thank you (laughs) yeah and you know what for what it's worth you know louis is essentially a hungarian you know right we forgot about that so which is why it wasn't 100 percent clear to me from the get-go if this is a little bit of a wink nod at the movie, the movie Stranger, um, or if this is also just a little bit of him exploring his own Hungarianness, maybe. Right, which, you know, uh, there's obviously some similarities to the movie. You, you have a Hungarian aunt that you yeah. live with, and there's yeah. like, there's the, um, um, something that's lost in translation, communicating with people. Absolutely. Um, 
I, in the moment, I thought like it was quite interesting that he was exploring some uh, Hungarian, you know, theme in, in at the time when his show was at its probably most popular. Too, yeah, and that it was yeah. there, which has seemed like such a rare thing. Yes, um, you know, I think it's difficult, especially in America, to and in the times that we live in, to separate um, artists from their their real life from their work, their yeah. art. You know. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's it's a tricky subject. I know, and I and I, it's not like I want to put you in a position to have to like make some sort of comment on it. Well, let's uh, see. I mean, but that's the thing too. Framing the question for me is not something that I'm. I don't know how comfortable I am in like right. posing a question because I'm not sure what that would even be. Well, okay, here, here, I'll make it easier for you. Okay. Go ahead and ask because you've already. If you opened with that, I wouldn't say that. We, I, I trust you, you know, go ahead and ask what you want to know and I'll see if I can answer it in a way that I can get behind. Right. Well, I'm, I mean, I guess, uh, I would have a feel like I would be obligated to ask you, even if it wasn't in the context of this kind of a conversation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If we were hanging out at Barbes or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. and I'd be like, well, what do you, what do you think yeah, about all this? People want to ask. Yeah. I, I have. Well, I find that you know when you've worked, when you've had an experience with someone, people want to know. They want to know. Um, the thing is, I don't necessarily want to know. Did anything happen yeah. between the two of you? Yeah. Um, because of the fact that the roles that you play have always, that to, from what I've seen, they're pretty strong female characters that are Very like much they so. don't really put up with any shit from the male side. Which now some people say. You know, and who knows, there may be an ounce of truth to this. It's not even the worst thing in the world, but that because I would think it would be kind of unconscious, but some people are now saying, oh, that was a cover, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that his, his sort of decency and hapless in the face of strong women characters was a little bit of a cover. Isn't that what people are saying? I'm, I'm not saying that. This is what I'm... Right. The, some of the chatter I've heard. Well, I could see that. I mean, it's a, it's a definitely an interesting theory. You know, I can't speak for the guy. I don't know him. Um, looking at some of his art after the fact has been mm-hmm. a little challenging because because of the way he his relationship with women was a centerpiece of his work. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, and the fact that his foibles uh, yeah. in relationships, how he couldn't maintain a relationship. Often there right. was a lot of like right. sexual awkwardness was a part of it, but it was clearly being informed by a lot of his own weird struggles, struggles I guess. Yes. Um, and so you could look at it two ways and maybe both are a little bit true. One is that he was really honestly grappling with something, which is, to me, the most noble thing you can do as an artist. Right. Um, and the other way you could look at it is this other idea that he was sort of not entirely consciously maybe creating a little bit of a cover or smokescreen. Right. Uh, and it's maybe a little bit of a combination. I don't know because I don't know him that well. I... I find it really, really difficult to um, dismiss an artist because of what they do 
and I don't know that that's healthy in a society. Mm -hmm. But I have my own theories about that, and I may be the lone dissenter, and I may be thrown under the bus for saying that. That's why I'm going to ask you to give me a second to think about yeah, and whether by, I feel comfortable. For sure. Because, because here's the thing, it's, too. It's, that by no means uh, is this, even the way that I do this show, uh, um, never do I ever try to put anyone on the spot anyway. I think the fact that his last, some of his most beloved work of yeah. recent memory yeah. was scenes that the two of you guys did together, you know, right, in a way. Right, right, right. You know, which is, which is truly weirdly yeah. ironic in yeah. some cases. And I think he did great work. And I think... I agree with that. Uh, artists who struggle in their personal life and do great work would be... This is my theory so scared to say this but I think artists who struggle uh, with some kind of decency in their day to day life if they weren't artists I think they would be a lot more damaging people creating a lot more I think their artist self is their best self mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's the way they grapple with their problems and it's the way they um actually become decent for a minute for a day for a year for the day you know for whatever that for the second that it takes to conceive an idea right. instead of being out there making someone else miserable they're actually trying to bring some beauty into this world uh so you know i'm not forgiving every horrible human being that's an artist but i am saying that I'm not sure that endorsing, boycotting them forever or banning all their art or lo looking back at all their art with, with, you know, a slant towards, oh, this was all shit and a cover. Right. I, I don't really endorse that. I don't think that's good. But I may be in the minority here. I think that the fact that you... I mean, it's your personal stance and only yeah. you can have that. I think yeah. because... I think Society, the way society is framing things through um, the screens of our phone and our computer yeah. puts, uh, puts the perspective in a very skewed kind of um, totally. uh, way where it's almost like a very communist kind of approach. Totalitarian. To yeah. It's, it's exactly what I, I was thinking, that there is a bloodlust. Right. And I think that's dangerous. Uh, I also think there's something great happening. It's nuanced. It's complicated. Right. Um, I met somebody who's quite a bit older. Um, maybe they won't even be around for that much longer, kind of older, who seemed uh, really thrilled that this is happening now. And she had probably lived through so many decades right. of the other thing that seeing her joy that this is happening made me kind of get it you yeah, know wow. and and, and yeah. she sort of said well it'll all come out and yes it always goes like too far one way too far but in the end it'll work out and to 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 sense that she's like this is right this needs i felt that but i also see the bloodlust and that's yeah. that's that digital social media curse and i think it's very easy to sit back and judge and and there's this thirst for the next one and more and uh, the scandal and 
when you actually know somebody and know their kids and know that hundreds of people whose careers and work may be affected by um, them falling de- off the pedestal overnight, uh, it's not so easy to re- sit back and rejoice. Of course, yeah. I think that's a very important point to make, especially for this thing. And I don't want to dwell on this, um, but is that like at what cost? Obviously, this is something that I guess um, had to and needed to come out at some point in time. Um, if you will. But the amount of loss, let's say, of... Now, I, this might, I might even have to edit this part out. Because yeah. this is still... Um, we're, we're forming our thoughts about this. Yeah. This is in progress. Of and, course. And I may say something different tomorrow. And that's why the whole social media and digital consciousness approach to this is so dangerous. Because this is a complicated thing right. that is forming in front of our eyes. And so that sort of soundbite, conclusive approach yeah, exactly. doesn't work. And it's not right. Yeah, this these kind of statements that yeah. are set in stone and that's what you'll be judged by. Yeah. You better watch out when you make your statement. Yeah. Whether it be from the press um, and how they how and when they decide to release an article about something like this because those are obviously very strategically planned too clearly Um, and then how that person then is absolutely obligated to respond and it's all for the public to judge upon and then you know decisively you know you see everything they work for become kind of pulled apart yeah but yeah. at what cost because like like look at for louis for example yes. now i'm not here going to talk about every other fucking case because there's a no, new no, one no. every day and that's the other thing let, let me just say i feel very strongly about this because we're kind of uh, expanding on just Louis right. and talking about but another mistake with this approach is putting everyone in the same Basket. It's not. Right. Louis is different than Woody Allen. Woody Allen is totally different than Harvey Weinstein. Woody Allen hasn't even been convicted of anything, by right. the way. Um, and uh, and sometimes people don't get convicted who've done things wrong. And sometimes they have. And sometimes people get falsely accused. You know, everything is different. Right. And we're just not processing things in this way where there's room for nuance and for differentiation between every. They don't all belong in the same wastebasket. Every case is different. Anyway, go ahead. Right. Is that, I think, because he had so many shows and films in production with it, that had a lot of women and mothers and, uh, yes. and yes. Uh, people with families. But there were a lot of women that were employed yes. through his various things. Exactly. And they, a lot of them. And he has now. two girls. Sure, Yes. And a lot of people are suffering. A lot of women are suffering. And it's, I don't know. I mean, again, this is just sort of riffing on this stuff, too. Yeah. Because what I'm saying is that by no means a definitive statement. And every day our opinions are entitled to change. This isn't a totalitarian state still, you know, so. Exactly. um, But I do think it's healthy to to chat about it. Absolutely. And and not only healthy, it's important. And there's a lot of shit that went on for a long time. That needs to change right and so that's going on and it's just, now it's just about how how we're going to approach that change and yeah. i'm not at ease necessarily with the with the you know overnight revolution version of things right right over, let's clean it all up overnight because i think that those kind of revolutions are very bloody yes clearly yeah 
Um, and and as far as Louis specifically, you know, I I never had a bad experience with him like that on any level. If that's if just to cut to the if you were asking about that, I, I know I almost feel embarrassed to ask. I you that. Know, you know, I know. It's not and like was you know when we. Decided, if I did, I probably would would either talk you know then I would have a, a real dilemma. Yes. But I don't have that dilemma, so yeah. luckily, that's not my dilemma. My dilemma is you know. I, I, my dilemma is I want the systemic problem to change, um, but I want to be able to separate the, the artist from some of their things they did, and I want to be able to look at human beings still as human beings and uh, not everybody the same. So, you know, I already verbalized what my dilemma is, but that's not my dilemma. He, that right. I didn't have an, an incident like that with him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate you even you know, traversing that path with me as much as that was never my intention. Because when we were talking about doing this too, it was before any of that stuff uh, was a public um, topic in newspapers and shit like that. Well, I mean, this and the rumors have been dogging him for years. Absolutely. Yeah, that I know. I mean, but anyway, my whole... How do you feel about it? I feel... um, I feel ashamed for him I feel like the things that he's being accused of doing are not only embarrassing but couldn't be more unnecessary you know Um, I I feel like that this should have been something that should have been dealt with a long time ago of course it's that shame thing that we all have in our own versions that are hopefully a lot less damaging right um of of compulsions or whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. And no one is immune, and when we get on social media and decry everyone, we kind of come off looking like we don't have. I mean, we don't have those particular problems on that scale necessarily, right. but 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 that sort of shame based compulsion thing, we do have our own little versions of that. All of us, right? Well, human beings in many ways do a lot of subconscious and conscious um, decision making that is that happens behind closed doors that um, you know is can be very shameful and that um, we're going to be ashamed of after and that's part of the reason why we do it because right. it's a sort of unconscious you know I mean I, I'm not going to get into we're not doing a psychology podcast but you know no. where I'm going yes right? absolutely yeah. Even if it's just the fifth time we went on Facebook that day, and then we're going to feel like, what the fuck are we doing? You know. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, social media compulsion is uh, repulsive at times. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's a repulsive is a good word. Right. That's kind of what I'm talking about. We do these things that we are repulsed at, about right. ourselves, and yet we keep doing it. Right. So it's not as... And his version of it was pretty bad and probably should have gotten some help. Right. You know? Absolutely. But, yeah, but the whole reason why I wanted to do this was yeah. first and foremost is just that I'm truly a fan of your work and uh, uh, a great admirer of your work because of where you came from and your family and uh, and being Hungarian and that there are very few um, great truly Hungarian artists in the states you know especially actors. Um, and uh, there's some that are like have some distant relatives, which I also appreciate in many ways. But uh, 
And just that you kind of came out of this really kind of brilliant theater scene and like a scene in New York that um, was for a while this window of like such a melting pot of people. I mean, like, and a lot of art, musicians, see, I come more from a musical background. So Mm. my knowledge of of theater is is quite limited compared to the musicians that would that would hang out and play late night or whenever at at the squat right, for example right, right. You know. were you also a musician yourself I know. just a dj just a record just a collector DJ, right. just a fan and a journalist for many yeah. years too so um so to know that you were kind of part of that scene yeah. you know and djing and like on the peripheral and sort of like ambivalence uh, in a way which is kind of pretty badass to mm-hmm. it has a mm-hmm. certain cool quality and just that you can like you know it's a kind of a cool New York story where you mm-hmm. did a little bit of this and a little bit of that and and, and played a part in some pretty like remarkable um, moments in film you know uh, that that's the, really the only reason why I wanted to talk to you and uh, as also we have a show coming yes. up too and to be able to plug that is like of course that's a small uh, uh, bonus Perk. yes yeah. I think um, yeah so I thanks just thanks so much for, for that yeah. of course Persa and, <laughs> uh, and I just hope that you continue doing your thing and, and creating I have to now I know that's the way yes <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. One way or another. I just don't know how, but but that's the only way to get through this crazy thing. Yes, there is a there are there's a lot of ways. You just yeah, navigating now is a little more treacherous, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. A little more convoluted. I mean, just just very specifically the making of records thing specifically is, is production wise. Production wise, like, like how you know you do need money to make records. Well, some people don't. I guess they can do it in their bedroom, right? Sure. Yeah. I'm, there's ways to do it without spending a lot of money. There's ways of doing it. There's ways to go into studios without spending a lot too much money. Not, not, right. You know. Not too. Yeah. I mean, you definitely don't need that much, but. Especially if you're doing like acoustic stuff or just um, violin and vocals, I've, if you're doing a full band, that you know maybe gets a little more involved. But yeah, in New York City, you know, I think you can you can do pretty cool stuff without going to some big studio. Crazy, yeah, yeah, sure, definitely, no, definitely. But I just uh, I like playing with a band, and I rarely do it. And I'm going to do it on this gig, which is great. Yeah, I can't wait to see that, and I. Um, just thank you for your time so much. Thank you, and yeah. thank you for the show too. I'm really looking forward to yeah. it. Yeah, hopefully, maybe we can do some more yep, in the future. Definitely. Awesome. That was awesome and amazing. And I want to thank the wonderful Esther Ballant for her time and for taking the time to chat with me, come to Brooklyn. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. There's some amazing stories in there and moments in time. So, yeah. Um, and I'm still wandering around the backyard of my childhood home. So if you hear me, see, the, when I do these intros and outros, I, ha- I absolutely have to pace around. I can't sit still. And uh, my bedroom, in my childhood bedroom, is just not, it's not built for pacing. You know, my apartment in New York is a great uh, pacing style apartment. You know, it's one long line. So I can just walk up and down while I record these. I have to be able to be moving when I do these for some strange reason. I can't sit still. And uh, anyway, if this was your first time listening to The House List, I do it once a week, sometimes twice. It's mostly casual, music-based stuff, but, you know, there are no rules to it, so it'll grow and evolve. 
And uh, I hope you liked it. Please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can, spread the word, repost it, um, or tell a friend about it. Every episode is edited and engineered with my friend CJ Stewart. Um, This was such a great conversation. These are what I kind of strive for, just sort of digging in and um, having a good, honest dialogue, like what you would have, like, at a dinner party with someone or at a party or like a casual kind of uh, uh, meeting of some kind, you know, so I hope you guys dug it. I mean, um, yeah, what else can I say? I mean, uh, just trying to be honest and earnest about about everything. And yo, just come meet me at the Bell House Friday, December 1st and buy those tickets at thebellhouseny.com to see Shilparay, Bush Tetras and Esther Ballant and this incredible bill that I put together and I think we're going to end the show with another song off of uh, Esther's most recent album now obviously she's got some new stuff uh, in the works um, but I wanted to play something so I got a couple songs from her to to play off Airless Midnight which came out in 2015 Um, so we're going to close with another one and uh, yo thank you so much I love y'all And I will see you guys next week when I'm back in New York. Bye now.